And so tonight we are kicking off a brand new series, and I am so amped about it. It's called Elijah. We're doing an Elijah series. We're going to go through the eight miracles that Elijah did in his, in his lifetime. And so if you did not get a handout for tonight, hold your hand up real high. I know we've got some people that are willing to hand those out and, and get them to some people. So Brother Andy's got some. I know we've got a, one up here that needs to get a handout. Brandon's coming down this side. Keep your hand up held, held up real high till you get it. And so um, as they're handing those out, a couple quick announcements. Hey, men, if you're looking for something to do this weekend because Wildcat football is not happening this weekend, it is a bye weekend. Hey, guys, don't let that be a chance where you just sit at home and do nothing. Don't skip out on what God's got for you. We have a men's conference. It's an all-in men's conference. And basically the premise is, if, what, would you, what would your life be worth if you lost everything? And the theme of it is like life, many times we play gamble, or, or we, we gamble on certain things, and are you gambling with your life? And if you lost everything, what would your life be worth? And so we're going to challenge you as men to step up in five areas. Step up in your career, go all in. If you know where God's called you to be and you're in that career, go all in in your career, go all in with your family, go all in with your friends, go all in with, with your, with your, um, with your, uh, with your, uh, with your, told you that's one mess up go all in with your friends um go all in uh with with your children and then go all in with if you are a senior adult a senior adult how do you go all in as a senior adult and what that means is a lot of times when you get to a certain place in your life and your kids are grown and they're out of the house you're like what's my purpose now i don't know what i'm supposed to do listen we call that at our church prime time we believe you're in the prime of your life your kids are gone you need to be saying thank you jesus I've raised my kids, now I can tell other people how to raise theirs. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I mean, you're in the prime of your life where more than likely you're more financially stable than you were when you just got married. I mean, can, can we get an amen on some of that? And, and, so, and, and so you're in the prime of your life, and you've got a lot to offer. How do you go all in as a, as a senior adult? And so we want you to come in and be a part of this conference. What's going to happen Friday night? There's a place just outside of Brashear called Coon Lake that we're going to go hang out at. If you got a shotgun, you can bring it. Bring it unloaded, please, because they're going to have a skeet shooting contest. They're going to have a biggest fish contest. So if you want to go fishing, bring a fishing pole. Andy Crouch is going to be cooking burgers and hot dogs for everybody out there. Come on. I I'm glad God anointed men to cook. Come on. Uh, I love having anointed men that can cook in a church. I mean, that's... And so he's going to be cooking burgers for everybody. And so it's going to be a fun night. Friday night's like a men's outdoor night. And then Saturday morning, we're going to meet at First Baptist Church in their fellowship hall. And we're going to have a, a I'll preach um, three times on Saturday, two breakout sessions and a, and a Sunday morning opening message. So come and, and be a part of that. It's going to be awesome. And so that's the men's all-in conference. Uh, Sharon Griggs, raise your hand real high. She's going to be selling tickets right at the, through the back double doors at the back of the sanctuary. And if you do come Friday night, bring your lawn chair because I'm not carrying 150 metal chairs out there for everybody to sit in. I'm going to ask you to bring your own. It's going to be an awesome and amazing time. And also on Wednesday nights, we don't take up a, a, a formal tithe and offering, but if you missed your opportunity to give this past Sunday, there's a mailbox at the um, far hall of the church where you can just drop your tithes and offerings in there. And visitors, if you're visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being at TWBC. We know that God has something amazing for your life. We do want to get to know you a little bit better. If you just take that card out of the back of the chair in front of you, fill it out, Bring it to the information center right after service. We've got a person who's going to be behind the information center that wants to give you a gift from the church and also some information about TWBC so you can get planted in and be a part of all that God has called you to become a part of. And so tonight as we kick off this new series, the Elijah series, we're going to talk about the first miracle, and the first miracle takes place in 1 Kings 17. But our key verse of Scripture throughout all this comes out of the New Testament. It comes out of the book of James, chapter number 5, and it's verse 17 and 18. 
And the Bible says this in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. That ought to give you hope. <laughs> if Elijah can do what he did and has a nature just like ours, that should give you hope. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, our prayer for this series is that we know if your prophet Elijah and all the amazing things that he did uh, uh, with your anointed power and your miracle work and power transformed the nation of Israel and people he came in contact with. And your word says he has a nature just like ours. That means, God, it is not impossible for us to experience your power, your supernatural power in a mighty way, to go change the world that we live in and to see you do amazing and phenomenal things through us. And so God, begin tonight. Start with us right here. We want to see your miracles and your power at work to transform lives. And so not that people would know God, but Father, that people would know you. The Heavenly Father. Jesus said, Abba, Father. And like we talked about Sunday, we can call you Poppy, Abba, Father, Father, Daddy, because that's who you are to us. Let us experience the love of the Father through this series. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. A little bit of background about Elijah and who he was. We're going to kick this off in 1 Kings chapter 17 to begin to tell you a little bit about who he was. The Bible doesn't say a lot about who Elijah was, and we'll jump into that in just a second. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, that's all you know about him. That's all it says about him. That literally, that's, that's, that's the preface of Elijah. One of the most mighty prophets in the Old Testament, that's his, his preface. He said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And that references to what we just talked about in the book of James. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself in the brook of Kareth, which is east of the Jordan, and you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook of Kareth, east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And as we jump into this Elijah series, I put two maps on there, because this is where they think Tishbe was located. They think it was located in this area, and it wasn't a formal city. It's kind of like I grew up in the grand metropolis area of Mahoney, Texas, right? Mahoney, man, we were the mayor of Mahoney. Come on, we were the only ones who lived there. Not really, but, but it was basically Tishbe is noted as just a little community with a, a few sporadic families that live there, a, basically a place of nothing, and out of nowhere, God rises up a man. And so when you begin to read and study this, some people are like, well, is this even a place? Is it even a city? No, it wasn't a formal city. It, it didn't even have like what we would say a zip code. It was just like a, a little community that had kind of a name. And I'm glad we're in rural East Texas because you can't even say that in Dallas. They'd be like, what? Y'all got places that don't even have zip codes? <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, we live in a, a rural area and it would have been like outside a suburb of a rural area, like Mahoney or a little community that gathered together is, is, is the best way to uh, say where he lived and so it begins to kind of show where it was at and the the brook of Kareth right there and the prophet's name um Elijah literally means my God Jehovah is he now Jehovah means the Lord 
Because you can study the Bible and you can talk about the names of the Lord. You got Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Jireh. It means the Lord and Jehovah Jireh. The word Jireh means will provide. And so when you say Jehovah Jireh, it means the Lord, my provider. And so this means, uh, Elijah means uh, my God, the Lord. And English, since we do a lot of stuff backwards than most other language, it means the Lord, my God. In English is how you would actually say it. So Elijah means the Lord, my God, is he. And so it signifies it is he who sends me at his own will. Um, it is he who sends me at his own and at his own will, and he, and he bears me out. It is whom I bring. I would bring Israel back, and who can alone effect that great work is the fullness of the meaning of his name. And one of the most striking things about Elijah is that he has no stated ancestry. This is weird for a Hebrew prophet. This is crazy. You talk about Jesus and Jesus on the scene; they trace him all the way back to Abraham. <laughs> The Jewish people are renowned and known for their ancestry. The only nation that rivals them is the Chinese nation. They're renowned and they're known for their ancestry. They keep accurate records. Even when God brought back the remnant, if they could not prove their ancestry and who they, what tribe they came from, they're like, nope, you're not a part. You can come live in our area, but we are going to make sure we call back the people who, and we can prove their ancestry. So they were, they were awesome at keeping their ancestry. And so this is quite unusual to have a prophet ride up, rise up with no ancestry or no, no mention ancestry. The Jews are very careful about their record of ancestry. And this has led some scholars to suggest that he might have been a Gentile. I completely disagree with that, but I did want to throw it out there. I'm not going to hide what some scholars think from you because I know you are uh, godly men and women and can think on your own. And so some scholars think that he could have been a Gentile. Um, there, there, there was never a Gentile prophet, okay, so that's kind of would falsify that one. And so others draw the parallel, and I liken to this one, to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was in Genesis, and when Abram won the war and he won the spoils, he came back and he met the priest of Salem, Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is literally a foreshadowing of Christ. Some say he is Christ incarnate or a pre-Christ, um, somebody who came as a forerunner to him, as a, as, as a standard bearer of what Christ would be. And so some put uh, Elijah along those lines as one of the greatest prophets because he has no ancestry. Um, so, so one thing is a lot of people say, did he just appear out of nowhere? <laughs> Melchizedek has no ancestry. It's like he just appeared out of nowhere. So nowhere geographically speaking is the town of Tishbe and Gilead. And so those are the maps we just talked about. There's not an official town. It would have been just a community. And so when a man is referred to by ge ge geography rather than ancestry in the Old Testament, you need to pay careful attention because it means he, ris he was risen up out of obscurity and just the same way Jesus was. And Elijah, there's a lot of things that line up with his life as he would be a forerunner to Christ more than just uh, a prophet, uh, so to say. And so when a man is referred to by that, it's something to notice. So Elijah, I like how they phrase this, is literally from the sticks is what it says. But we know uh, two things about his character which define him. And these are very important. He is one who serves God. The phrase in the original is that he is one who stands before God. Is the first character to note about him. It calls to mind the, the picture of the cherubim before God awaiting his commands. And he also, as James assures us, is a man of prayer. So as, he, um, as you combine those two attributes of his life, uh, it brings together um, God's servant, a man of action, who, defined, who has defined himself as standing before God, awaiting his pleasure with the inner life of prayer. And if you ever want to compare yourself to something or be a godly man, those would be the character traits of a godly person whose life is defined by prayer and he stands before God as a man of action in prayer. 
And I want to encourage you to be men and women of action in prayer. And the combination of these two, uh, see what kind of man God wants to bring to greatness. A lot of people say, Joel, I want to do great things for the kingdom of God. I wanted to see God do awesome things through me. Well, if you want to see God do awesome things through me, these two attributes are what God uses and looks for to rise up men and women to the area of greatness. Some that depend, uh, men that depend on him and stand before him, but also men that are willing to be people of action and do what God's called them to do uh, at any given moment, like Elijah the prophet was. And so God begins to, to use him mightily. And so the, I'm giving you a lot more background information than you'll get through the rest of the series because if we're going to do this whole series on Elijah, you kind of need to know who this man was. Not just what he did, because who he was set up what he did. And so he was in this region that he was in, the area of Tishbe. It was overrun by ungodliness, because you had, the, you had uh, King David who set the kingdom up. You had King Solomon who began to run the kingdom and built the temple. But at the end of Solomon's life, you'll notice that he began to allow a lot of other religions to come back in. He began to let a lot of other religions come and infiltrate the Jewish people and, the, and their heritage and, and what God had said for him not to do. And so at this time, the time that the kings have gone uh, several generations in, the, the nation of Israel is overland with ungodliness and different religions and things. And the two prominent religions um, in this area or this region are Baal and the Asherah religion. And I'll, I'll read what those are in just a minute because the, 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 the religion of Baal, it's more generic, but you will find him fighting this religion all throughout his ministry. And, oh, I can't wait. Do you get that message? Gosh, dog, it, I'm going to have to figure out a way to switch messages with him. Anyways, he calls down fire on the prophets of Baal. And I'll just give you a preface, because that's a great message, man. The, the 450 prophets of Baal, they're up on Mount Carmel, and, and, and I'll just jump off into this one. They're up on Mount Carmel, and, and Elijah's sitting there and says, the God who answers by fire will prove that he is the God of all the earth. And so they had 450 prophets build this huge sacrifice, and they're all running around cutting themselves and everything like that and, and, and calling down fire, and the day goes on and, and, and everything like that. And, they, and, and Elijah starts talking noise. I love it. He's like, hey, why don't you yell louder? Hey, why don't you scream louder? Maybe your God can't hear you. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious to me. I mean, I, just, I find that funny. And then at the end of the day when nothing happened, Elijah has his sacrifice and his altar built. And he's like, are you ready for me to call down fire from heaven? And they're like, well, yeah, do it. And he goes on to say, go ahead and soak it down with water. And so they did. And he says, go ahead and do it one more time. And so they soaked the sacrifice down with water. And he said, hey, that's not good enough. Go ahead and do it one more time. And it says so much water that it filled the trenches and everything all around it. And Elijah calls on the Lord his God. And God answers with fire and literally explodes this sacrifice with a huge fire and it laps up all the water, the Bible says, that was in the trenches. And so that was him going against the gods of Baal. And so they had 450 prophets of Baal versus the one man of God. And if that doesn't give you courage, that one man can override 450 of the prophets of the greatest religion coming against the body of Christ. Come on now. I mean, Elijah was a man just like we were, just like we are. And he prayed, and it did not rain for three and a half years. He prayed again, and it rained. This ought to give you great courage that if an Old Testament man, not walking in the resurrection power of Christ yet, can call down fire from heaven like that and override the power of 450 of the strongest prophets of another religion, 
Why do you not think we cannot call on the name of the Lord our God and see a whole nation of Muslim people born again in a couple weeks? I mean, are we so absent-minded about prayer that we forget the power of God to call on his name? And, and so this religion of Baal, I want you to hear about it. Baal is the primary male god of the Canaanite region centered around Sidon, which came from Jezebel. If you know anything about the Old Testament, Jezebel is a huge character that he will face in the next few chapters as we go through this series. Um, worship of this god included such interesting features as infant sacrifice. Mm. Whenever people start sacrificing babies, God always get involved. So I'm just saying, as the abortion rate rises, get ready. God's just to get involved. I'm just, I'm just saying. Follow, follow biblical study. It happens. Features as infant sacrifice and cannibalism. They're represented by the sun. He is the primary symbol of male fertility. He and Asherah, the next religion we'll talk about, gave birth to 70 other gods who make up the pantheon of this worship style. This name, the name is generic in sense, and sometimes it is applied to more than one other god or several other religions is what it's saying. And then Asherah, the next religion, and you'll talk, you hear about the Asherah poles and the stuff that, that they built. Um, this religion is the primary female goddess of this region. Her worship features temple prostitutes, and she is represented by the moon. So basically, these two religions got together, and, and they did all kinds of ungodly acts together. And if you'll study Jezebel, she is the product of these two religions coming together. And so when people say a Jezebel spirit, there's really no such thing in the Bible as a, a particular Jezebel spirit. It was a woman who had a ton of different spirits and issues that plagued her that caused her to do a lot of ungodly things. And so in this, she is the product of that that uh, Elijah will fight here in just a little bit in, in a couple chapters or a couple weeks down the series. And so 1 Kings 1, 17, 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite, of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab now who is Ahab <laughs> who's Ahab we must go back to chapter 16 not 17 to find out who Ahab is and if you'll read the end of chapter 16 it goes through several different kings that all did ungodliness in the eyes of the Lord and it says in the 38th year of Asa the king of Judah Ahab son of Omri began his reign over Israel and Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years and Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him now that, that's something you need to take note of so so this is reaching a climax is what it's saying so Elijah shows up when this is reached when ungodliness is reaching a climax and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam son of Nebat he took for his wife Jezebel that ought to tell you a lot about him right there the daughter and, um, the, and the king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him they erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal which he, which he built in Samaria and Ahab made an Asherah pole and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger than all the other kings of Israel who were before him. This is the worst of the worst of the kings of Israel, is what the Bible's saying. And, and it was especially horrible. And so God in this situation, you got Israel doing horrific things as the nation of Israel. They've turned against God. The king of Israel married one of the most ungodly women in the biblical history of the Bible. And they did the two most abominable uh, religions before God in the nation of Israel. So this was the worst of the worst power couples uh, in the nation of Israel. You can say it like that. And so in this, God rises up a prophet, a man of God to come and begin to talk to Ahab. Now, I love how Elijah did this. 
Elijah didn't try to make a, a political dispute. He did not try to make a religious dispute. He went straight to the king himself and said, Ahab, we got to talk, buddy. Things aren't going right. So what is the job of a prophet, the office of a prophet? Prophecy, especially in the Old Testament, had two functions. The prophet is to foretell. Foretell not in the sense of predicting the stock market, but in terms of outlining the consequences God intends. Now listen, it doesn't say outlining the wrath of God. You must read this right. Outlining the consequences God intends. When you tell your child to stop, and it doesn't stop, there's consequences to his disobedience. God is not looking even in the Old Testament to be a God of wrath. He always wanted even the Old Testament to be God the Father. And the consequences for their actions are getting so bad that the Bible says they provoked God like nobody else had ever provoked God before. And so the job of a prophet is to say, if you do not change, if things do not change, these are the consequences of your actions, not the wrath of God. These are the consequences of your actions. Does that make sense? You must read the Bible in the light that it was written in, not the light that we have portrayed God in. Right? And so God has even said in the beginning, when Adam sinned, he said, Adam, because of your sin, these are the consequences of your action. The ground is cursed. God didn't say, I curse the ground. He said, the ground is cursed because of your sin. We've read it that, oh, Adam sinned, so God cursed him. No, he didn't. The consequences of Adam's sin was the curse. God is the God of redemption has tried to get him back the whole time. God in this same process right here is doing the same thing through his prophet saying, Ahab, if you'll repent and turn and change your ways, you won't have to go through the consequences. But if you don't, the consequences are this. And so we must read it in the light that it's written in. And so the job of a prophet is to foretell, not in the sense of predicting the stock market, but in terms of outlining the consequences God intends foretelling by a prophet always carries an if if you don't repent It's not God's desire to bring wrath But when we provoke God God still doesn't bring it. He just says I'm taking my hands off it And I'll explain that here in a little bit The job of a prophet is also to foretell to proclaim wickedness for what it is in this day when when everything is relative and there is no absolute truth some think that this is quaint at best but the prophet has no choice. This is God's work for the prophet. So the prophet's job in the Old Testament is to say, Ahab, you're wrong, okay? You're, you're wrong. And listen, the prophet's works are usually accompanied by miraculous signs. Now, in the New Testament, the job of a prophet changes because the wrath of God has been satisfied on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ has already went before the judge. The blood has destroyed the power of sin. Amen. We talked about this the past several weeks. It's destroyed the power of sin. He's paid the punishment for our sin. So the job of a prophet in the New Testament is this. It's encouragement, edification, and exhortation accompanied by miraculous signs. Okay? My Sunday morning messages usually are very prophetic. They're encouraging, they're edification, they're exhortation, they're building up the body of Christ, and I'm praying that God performs more miraculous signs through it. I mean, come on, y'all get, I'm ready for that. I'm ready to see God move. And so the job of a new co covenant prophet is, goes along those lines, and so those people who you say, they, they say, well, I'm a prophet, and, and, and God's judgment's gonna come on you for all your sin. No, that's the spirit of judgmentalism, <laughs> Okay. And there are times when, when God will speak to you say, if you don't repent, these are the consequences of your actions. And God can even use somebody to do it, but usually those people aren't standing up there saying, hey, I'm a prophet and God's calling you out. <laughs> I mean, no, not, not really. 
I, I believe God is a God who works most of the time behind the scenes to get you to repent. And he calls you silently and he brings you before him. And then he'll bring your best buddy to say, hey, you better straighten up. And then if we begin to harden our heart, things begin to happen. And we'll get into that in just a minute. And so um, 1 Kings 17, 1b, now that we're actually past the first 10 words of the passage, we can go on. It says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide. Everybody say hide. Hide yourself by Kareth, by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now, I struggle with this. God in him wanting Ahab to repent tells his prophet to go hide. He tells his voice, the very voice in the Old Testament, the prophet was the voice of God. He pulls his voice from the situation. And I want to talk about hardness of heart just for a second. The greatest story of hardened hearts is Pharaoh. Do you remember the story? And the Bible says this, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, 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 and then it finally says after Pharaoh wouldn't surrender, God hardened it. And what that actually means is God finally said, Pharaoh, if your heart is so hard, I'm going to let it be. And literally what this, what this ends up meaning, if God cannot work through our surrender and obedience, he'll work through our rebellion. That's a, that's a tough word. If God cannot work through our surrender and our obedience, he'll work through our rebellion. If you harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart, finally God says, okay, fine, do it, but here's the consequences of it. And he'll work through our rebellion. That's what happened with Pharaoh. I always say it like this. If you're called to preach, you're going to preach. Don't harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart and say, God says, okay, do what you want to do. And so you land up in jail and then you finally say, hey, I'm preaching, but it's behind bars. Does that make sense? That's a modern day example. So if God, will not, if God cannot work through your surrender because you won't surrender and you won't be obedient, he will let your heart become hardened and he'll work through your rebellion. Jesus had the same problem, and I'm going to actually open up, and we're going to read John chapter number 12 at a little more length, because I don't have time, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it goes on to say in, in chapter 12, let's roll all the way back to verse number 36. Because this is, this is unique. It said, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. We just read the prophet Elijah, in this story, God said, go hide yourself. Why is God telling his voice to hide? Why is God trying to stop his voice from going forth? Now, now this is where, even if you read what I saw on Facebook, if you saw what I put on Facebook today and you read it, this is where it's going to begin to come in. I'm, it's not my job to water down God's word to where I understand it. It's my job to read it, read it till it changes how I think. It's not my job to make up an excuse for why I don't understand God's word. It's not my job. If I don't understand God's word, I must begin to read it and study it and go over it and over it and over it until he reveals to me what it really means. So if you don't know what something means in God's word, it's not so much that, that you just try to water it down and brush it over and come up with a good answer for it. No, you must read it until it changes how you think. And God reveals himself to you. It's kind of like the story of a man who's sitting in his rocking chair and he's rubbing the cat backwards from the tail of the head. 
And a man comes in and says, you know you're petting your cat backwards? He said, well, if he doesn't like it, he can turn around. <laughs> right? If you don't like what the Bible says, you can change how you think. <laughs> Come on. I'm serious about it. If you don't like what the Bible says, change how you think. Because if you'll study true redemption, God's never been a God of, God of wrath. It's always been a God of love. God doesn't like his word stroking you backwards and causing you discomfort. He says, turn around so it feels good. Come see it my way and you'll understand it. So Jesus says, the Bible goes on to say, and Jesus went and hid himself. Though he had done many signs before and they still did not believe or they had a hardened heart. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what, what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and they would turn, and I would heal them. Now to me, I, I'm, I'm kind of like, God, don't you want them to turn so you can heal them? God, don't you want them to turn so you can heal them? And God's answer is obviously yes, He does. His answer is, obviously he does. But when you don't change from your hard-heartedness, what God is saying here, if you'll continue to be hard-hearted and continue to be hard-hearted and continue to be hard-hearted, my word will eventually be hidden from you and you will not understand it and therefore you'll read it but you won't perceive it. You'll hear it but you won't comprehend it. You won't have the word of truth revealed to you. And if you won't soften your heart so the spirit can speak to you, if you won't let me work through your surrender and obedience, I'll work through your rebellion. That is not God's optimal way. That is not how God wants to teach. That is not how God wants you to learn. That is not how God wants you to understand. The Bible says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is the comforter and our teacher and he will show you all things to come. So those of you who've been learning by the school of hard knocks and say, well, I guess this is the only way I'm going to learn, turn your cat around. Come on. I may say that Sunday morning so all my Wednesday people laugh. <laughs> turn your dadgum cat around. God does not want you learning by the school of hard knocks. You may learn through the school of hard knocks because you've hardened your heart, but God says my desire is to teach you through my spirit. I love it when my sons will sit down and listen to me and let me teach them. But because they don't listen sometimes. <laughs> I finally say, do it, see. And I take my hands off. That's not the way I want my sons to learn. And you know the same thing. So listen, God in this passage, in, in, the, in the book of, of 1 Kings, when he finally says, Elijah, go hide. I don't believe that was a happy moment for God. I don't believe the angels of heaven were celebrating. But I do believe this with all my heart. If you will keep hardening your heart, and if you keep hardening your heart, and you will not surrender to God, God will work through your rebellion because you won't let him work through your surrender. And to those of you who are rebelling against God, especially against the call of God on your life, God is, is, is I'm not saying he's out of place because he is so patient. So patient. And God, God does not want to work through rebellion. He's had to. He did it with Pharaoh. He did it with these kings of Israel. He did it in Jesus' time. He's still doing it in our time. And there's people who say, 
well, God put me in jail to teach me something. No, he didn't. You got put in jail by being stupid. And because you finally got at a place where you could only look up and listen, you heard God's voice then. Don't blame your stupidity on God. I'm not serious about that. And people say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, a lot of it's our dumb decision-making is why it happened. And it's my heart. Oh, my gosh, God's got me on this big in my life right now for the past six, eight months. Joel, I need you to learn to listen. I need you to learn to listen. But, God, I hear you. Not like I want you to hear me. He said, I want you to hear my whisper. I want you to hear my soft voice. I want you to hear my loving voice, not my mandated voice, not when I got to raise my voice. Today, oh, I was studying and going through this message, and my heart began to break because I just think of friends and people in my life that, that are in this church and out of this church who I just see their heart being hardened day by day. And I just began to pray. I said, oh, God. If you can soften, how do we soften hearts? How do we soften hearts? God, I don't want your voice being pulled. I want your voice being heard. And it goes on to say in this passage of Scripture, You shall drink from the brook that I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook of Kareth in the east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, and there was no rain in the land. And it goes on to say, and so the next, next week's message is, so he went to a house of a widow, and she began to feed him and take care of his needs. That's next week's miracle, so I didn't put that verse. Even in the midst of the worst drought, God still supplies for his voice, though. <laughs> that ought to get you excited. Even in the worst drought, God still supplies for his voice. You are the church. You are the voice of God. So even in the worst economic crisis America can ever see, even in the worst drought America could ever go through spiritually or physically, even in the very, very worst, you are the voice of God. You are the church. And so I'm imploring you, do not harden your heart because he will supply for his voice. I want to encourage you to be his voice. He has always supplied for his voice. And he always will supply for his voice. So even though he pulled his voice from the nation and there was no rain coming on the land for three and a half years, he put his voice in a place to be properly cared for. He would even feed him by birds that would bring him bread and would bring him meat. And he would drink from a brook that didn't dry up for, for a couple years. <laughs> so even in a three and a half year drought, <laughs> we hadn't been in a three and a half year economic crisis in the United States in forever. I mean, things were bad about 10 years ago, but they weren't crisis. God supplied for his voice. And you know what I love is I apply that word to the church. The worst economic crisis that our generation experienced happened a few years back. Our church never missed. Our tithes didn't ever really drop. We never missed a payment. We kept expanding the kingdom of God. We kept finishing out project after project after project. Somehow God kept providing. I even looked at our bookkeeper one day and said, I don't understand how God keeps doing this, but we're going to keep expanding. We're going to keep growing. We're going to keep seeing the word of God go forth. We're going to continue to be his voice. And God has provided every step of the way.